Welcome to the third episode of Dialogica. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Swedian. And this week we're going to talk about our current governor of Jakarta, Basuki Jayapurnama. More colloquially known as Ahok. Uh, and in particular, focusing on the case of the Kalijodo eviction and demolition that happened in February. And the use of force that took place. So the fact that he used the military, the police, and the civil service unit as well as comparing him with other Indonesian leaders who've done the same. And all of this is couched within the context of uh, not only his upcoming gubernatorial re-election campaign for next year, but also the need to check our leaders uh, for the purposes of democracy. For democracy. And hold them accountable and have a dialogue about, you know, when we're talking about this issue, what are we really talking about besides the whole legality aspect, right? Like, we're talking about the lives of other pe- of thousands of people whose entire livelihoods have been upturned in the short time and space. And just, you know, really think about these issues in terms of adding into the public discourse and ha- holding our leaders accountable. Yay, democracy! Kalijodo is a land in North Jakarta, next to the river, much like the previous lands that Ahok has previously evicted beforehand. A few thousand people live there illegally without a permit to own the land. And recently, Ahok has decided to evict and demolish the place to return it to the green space it's designated into. And it all started, in a way, because of a car accident that happened on February 8th, which caused four fatalities. And in this particular case, the driver who was interviewed after the accident said that the night before the accident, which happened not in Galijodo, but in another part of town, um, he said that he had drank up to 10 glasses of hard liquor at Kalijodo, in the Kalijodo neighborhood, which resulted in the yeah. car accident. So besides um, just being an illegal settlement, Kalijodo is also known to be a place of... It's a red light district for the low-income people of North Jakarta. There's a lot of cafes where they can drink hard liquor and beer. There's prostitution and Gambling. brothels and all of the not so savory parts of any big city essentially Let's, you know there's also evidence of mafia activity around these black market economies but historically speaking it's been a lot of different kinds of people have lived there and it's a part of town that has a rich a- history as well and so uh, following this event on february 9th ahok came out with a statement that he will dismantle and demolish kalijodo and he works fast on february 12th the Kalijodo residents themselves decided to band together and protest the, how quickly this is unfolding. Yeah, so essentially that's within the less than five days, he decided that we're going to dismantle this area and he uh, made a public statement saying any Walikota or district leaders who do not follow his command will be fired. And then so on February 14th, the district leaders were sent out a letter of socialization saying that, you know, this eviction is going to take place and that upcom- letting them know of the decision to evict. On February 17th, Ahok decided to meet up with police leaders to formulate a plan for the day of eviction. And the next day, February 18th, the first letter of warning to the residents was sent out, basically telling them you have 11 days because the first letter of warning 
uh, is the start of a chain in which you have to have the event happen within 11 days. Uh, but it told them that you can either get out on your own terms, leave your house, vacate your house, or the government's still going to come and demolish it. On February 25th, the second letter of warning was sent out to the residents. On 28th, the third and final warning, and the 29th, eviction and demolition one is planned. Within also, one day, close to 3,000 people who lived in Kalijodo were either relocated uh, against their will or on their own, and close to 400 buildings were completely demolished. Yeah, and this is actually perfectly legal if you're questioning about the legality of it because the residents here do not have permits to live here and the zone is actually planned out for a green designated green zone. So it the governor is allowed under his jurisdiction to reclaim this land for public good. Mm-hmm. Um, so and so the timeline is legally no problem. Aho decided that he needs to clear this land and so he went for it. He, he, he's long said that he is bothered by this land and other governors has you know talked about dismantling this land but essentially there's no socialization that's going on in terms of like allowing the conversation and he was very much saying that you know we don't need dialogue we don't need to talk about with the people here it's, it's gonna happen in fact one of his uh, quotes is that why do we need to always be listening to the residents if we just listen and listen and listen nothing's gonna get done and this time he was like well, we're not gonna listen anymore bye eviction happened D-Day D-Day happened without a hitch perhaps also because 5,000 strong forces came out to evict less than 3,000 inhabitants so the ratio here is like a A David and Goliath story here exactly and these 5,000 strong military force actually involved the military as well as police forces and security forces of Jakarta so there's varying reports into what actually happened or what actually materialized, but roughly 5,000 people comprising of Satpol Pepe, the Polri, and TNI were dispatched. So Satpol Pepe is the civil service police unit of um, Indonesia. So it's under the jurisdiction of the governor or district leaders to you know, have public order and security. So in this kind of instance, this is the force that you want to have um, dismantle the house and like affect keep public, the peace, keep the peace, and make sure everything runs smoothly. That's within Ahok as the governor of Jakarta as within his right to use this force. So what was I think is interesting to me as someone who studied military, Indonesian military politics more deeply is how we're using. The Tani itself in a non-state of emergency, non-violent, you know, non-emergency situation, yeah. right? Because um, in 1999, Gusdur, one of his major presidential accomplishments was separating the police and the military within Indonesia. So before Gusdur's times, under Suharto, the police and the military was one fused unit used in any which way to, you know, control the Indonesian people. So if you have a demonstration, you just put in the military and you just crush any kind of dissent. It's almost this like quasi-strong force. Yeah, it's a military tra- state. Uh, yeah. 
the military, for the most part, is supposed to act on behalf of the national interest outside of the country. So when they get involved domestically, it's usually because there is a domestic threat. So civil unrest. Uh, so what there what they've been used before? I mean, Indonesia have never has never engaged in war outside of the country since Malaysia in the nineteen sixties and, confrontation and, and confrontation and seizing West Papua. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't have any conflict right now. Yeah. And so the controversial history of Thani is also interesting to note here, just because you know there's the civil rights violation in Aceh, East Timor, and Papua, right? So the way that Thani has been deployed in in, in, in has history has always been problematic. Problematic at best. Yeah. So what? Why is Ahok bringing them in now, and what jurisdiction or procedural authority does he have to do this? I also think the fact that he decided to, even though the numbers vary, but there's roughly around 500 Thani forces yeah. involved in the demolition day of Kalijodo. The That's fact that big. you've got that big of a force of people who are trained to kill, yeah. trained, to, trained to use force if necessary. Why? In Against the process of demolition. Of, from their homes. From their homes. I find that very troubling because what do you, what does that say about Aho's expectations about this, uh, this event? Yeah. That he needed that kind of backing. I mean, sure, you want to like, deter them and like it's a show of deterrence you know and and to be fair to him Kalijodo has a history of mafia and gang warfare so yes there is that potential threat of violence and in fact he and the police force even went to Kalijodo before and before demolition to do a raid and they did find a lot of weapons and um did they find did they find guns uh, i believe they found this is really interesting they found arrowheads but sharp they didn't find arrowheads. guns no, but they did find like knives and sharp arrowheads with poison, I believe, on them. So it's but like, no guns. No guns, but still things that could be used mm-hmm. to deadly yes. effect. Uh-huh. <laughs> Stephanie is very skeptical right now. Poison arrows versus the Indonesian military with their AK-47s. What a matchup. Part of me is like, why do we? Why are we still using poison arrows in, in gang warfare? And anyways, Jakarta too. There is the potential for deadly force, but how much is... Why do you need to squash this potential with such an overwhelming military presence? So I just want to also touch fact on the legal basis, whether or not Ahok is allowed to use Thani forces in Jakarta. So uh, under UU number 34, 2004, the law states that uh, the Indonesian army may help in their regional conflicts. However, it must be used only in special situations and for the importance of like the national politics so the idea is that like it's used for emergency bigger situations instead of just regular sounds like it it only is used for when there is a tangible threat yeah to the government yeah essentially the local government Um, when was this what year was this that the the law 2004 2004 Mm -hmm. interesting okay I think what I really want to stress here is that, you know, we are a young democracy and we really need to be careful about just brushing over rules and roles of different police units, especially because 1998 was just in our lifetime and we need to really respect the fact that we need to take care of the separation between these different units just because... We've seen what could happen. Yeah, and... I mean, Ahok, we trust him as a leader. We know that it's not he's not going to misuse this in such a really huge and violent way. But we don't want to have this normalization of um, use of Thani in Indonesian everyday life. Yes. 
to contrast Aha's strongman tactics, right? We're gonna actually tell a, a quick story about strongwoman tactics. Hashtag baller. Yes. <laughs> so um, my mom's hometown mayor, Tri Rismaharini, actually did something similar to Ahok uh, in uh, socializing and evicting the Dali neighborhood in Surabaya. So the Dali neighborhood is similar to Kalijodo in that it's an area known for its unsavory activities. It has low, uh, low income residents. There's prostitution. Gambling. It has the same. It suffers through the same problems. And is as equally a thorn in the side of the Surabaya city administration as Kalijodo has been to Jakarta. So Ibu Risma took one year closing down this neighborhood, and in that one year, she socialized the fact that they're going to be evicted and this area is going to be demolished. And she worked very closely with the people there and you know talking to them and making sure they have an alternative livelihood. In fact, um, she made a very public statement about saying like we need to work uh, together with the residents of. Um, the Dali neighborhood because they're as much a victim of the situation as everybody else who feels like this neighborhood needs to be revamped. And so she worked really hard to not only give them the notice of eviction, but also what can we do to support you in your new life? Yeah, so basically she was very good about noticing. You know, when we're talking about evicting someone, you're not just moving the place they live. For a lot of people, there's an economic impact as well because a lot of their jobs... Huge economic impact. Their Part of their jobs is getting income from where they live if you're a prostitute you know you're generating income from living there if you have a cafe or if you have gambling rings or you have just even innocuous things like you're selling sate and bakso in that place or even you're like the cleaner of the road there blah 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 yeah so he she wanted to make sure that people who are you know being moved away have a sustainable income in the future that they can generate food for themselves and their families that they're not just you know assets that are being displaced, but they're treated as human beings as they are. Yeah, just because like if we're talking feminist angle here is that you know when you're talking about prostitutes, you're also talking about the most vulnerable people in a particular place. If you are suddenly moving where they live, they might have had you know social networks there to protect themselves and, and ensure that you know they're not going to be raped if they are. Um, what are you know the ramifications that the support network they can have there, and just maybe just that network of close knit people they can ha- they can ensure some kind of security. Yeah, and so I think just being very careful about yes, if even if you don't agree with what they're doing, just being really sensitive about the fact that a lot of these people are not doing this out of choice but out of pure necessity. And especially with the Kali Jodo case in particular, a lot of the sex workers are out of town and they're from out of town. Yeah. So they've literally come here and they find themselves in this situation and that's the only situation of Jakarta they know. And now they're displaced and they have no idea where to f- how to function in the city and where to go. And exactly, that kind of social network yeah. is, is something that a lot of people like to easily like you know uh, sweep under the rug. But these are things you have to address when you're trying to relocate people. So if you looked at the conversations and the interviews between the sex workers who live in Kalijodo, they always talk about how they feel comfortable there just because it because it has been a place red light district for a while that you know if they feel more comfortable being under a brothel or a cafe, they can profit share with the owner and the owner ensures, you know, their safety to an extent. This and, informal yeah. social network that helps and benefits everyone even though it's within this uh, context of a 
less than legal situation. But at least it keeps everyone safe. To an extent, I'm sure that there aren't savory, terrible things that happen there yes, as well. Yes, of course. And trafficking, which is terrible and we do not condone or respect at all. Mm-hmm. But the point is that when we're talking about the uprooting of people's lives, there's a lot more that we need to think about and be careful about. And I don't think if you have three weeks to vacate a place that you are going to have the same level of thought and rigorous decision-making and that you know ensures that people that are more marginalized are going to they're going to suffer from this activity. Iburisma's success has been acknowledged not only by us, I feel, but also by Aho himself. Like he has praised Iburisma as somebody that is even fiercer than her than him, and praising her model of leadership. There's a lot to be learned from a le- leadership that is much more empathetic and wanting to converse with the people you're dealing with instead of an us-against-them situation. Yeah. It's an all-together, we're trying to solve a, solve a problem and find a unifying solution that benefits all of us. Exactly. Isn't that what democracy is all about? Yeah, I think what we need to really pay attention here as well is that these are people's lives, you know, and it may be difficult for us to look in very sympathetically to the lives of people who we don't know, but we have to think about that these are the lives of thousands and thousands of people who just suddenly are forced to leave their homes. Like, imagine you're living where you are now and you've lived there for generations, or and then you're suddenly told, like, okay, you're out. Like, and then if you were a tukang bakso or you're just, your livelihood is based on where you live, what are you gonna do? You can't just move easily out of there and just hope everything works out. They don't have, these people don't have a social capital or social, or they don't have much of an education and they don't have a safety net to fall back on. These people are people who are struggling to make a living to, they can't even think about, you know, what happens in the next few months. They usually just think about things. Day to day, bro, by week. And to be evicted in such a short amount of time within the shortest month of the year is... Some people say, wow, Aho, you're so effective in doing this, but they forget about the human cost. There is a human cost. Even if no lives were lost, there is a human cost. Middle and upper class people say, oh, cool, Aho is doing things well, but at whose cost here, you know? like Ultimately, at the end of the day, he's supposed to be a governor for Jakarta citizens across the spectrum. And we as the privileged ones who don't have to deal with the kind of issues that Mm -hmm. a lot of the lower income people have to deal with, we have to, and we are educated, we have to be able to hold Aho accountable yeah, and make sure that the things he's doing is fair to those outside of our circles. Who are marginalized and don't have the ability to speak up as much as other people. And mm-hmm. that's, I think, our role as citizens of this great city. This is this week's episode of Dialogica. Thank you guys for so much for listening up to the very end, I hope. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dialogica. We just want to give credit where credit is due. Especially for this particular episode, um, the amazing reporters in Compass and, and Tempo, Tempo and a lot of other publications like Jakarta Globe and Jakarta Post as well who we've um, compiled this episode from their hard work and research. So I think in particular, we also want to highlight the wonderful vic- compass.com, 
visual interactive compass who's done a very in-depth work on this topic and have a lot of narratives and history of Kalijero that we didn't get to touch on in this episode. So we'll definitely link it on our website because there's so much there that we couldn't fit into this episode and you guys should definitely check it out. And they also do a lot of other interesting reporting as well. So music credit to Ryan Little, Broke for Free, and Jazz Art. As always, please visit our website at dialogica.id. And follow our Instagram and like our Facebook as well, please. Uh, and in case you were wondering why we sounded so good, it's, it's not good. because of the editing, it's because we have a nice new fancy toy right now. The Blue Yeti microphone. So, Yay. shout out to the Blue Yeti. <laughs> thanks to my friend who got it from the US for us. Alright, thanks for listening and uh, here's to the next episode. Bye.